Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. The life and work of poet Emily Dickinson has been simmering in Martha Ackman's head for decades and even prompted her to move long ago to the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts where Dickinson lived. After writing previous biographies, Ackman, a former professor at Mount Holyoke College, finally arrived at a unique approach to capturing the subject that's consumed her for so long. The book is called These Fevered Days, Ten Pivotal Moments in the Making of Emily Dickinson, published by Norton in February 2020. I spoke with Ackman via Zoom from her home in western Massachusetts about how she first came to her interest in the enigmatic Dickinson. I uh, went to public school in Missouri and came from a family that supported education, certainly, but not necessarily reading. In, in my junior year of high school, we opened our, you know, our anthology of American lit, one of those grand tomes to Dickinson. Um, that was the lesson for the day. And uh, the poem was After Great Pain, A Formal Feeling Comes. A tough poem, uh, especially a tough poem for 16 and 17 year olds, I think. And uh, Mrs. Brandon, my high school English teacher, you know, asked the inevitable question, you know, what is this poem about? And I slunk down in my chair. I remember this moment, you know, like a kid does, like, don't call on me, don't, don't call on me. And, um, and she didn't. <laughs> and yet at that moment, when we began to read the poem, something shifted in me. And it sounds like I'm making it up, like it's some dramatic moment, but I remember it. It's true. And while I could not explain the poem, I could not go from line to line to line explicating it, I somehow understood it. And this is from a 16-year-old kid who did not experience great pain at that point, who did not have enough life experience, had a great family, supportive parents, good brothers. So it wasn't as though it tapped into something that I had experienced. But it has taken me the rest of my life to try to understand that moment. And I, I think it, it is a consequential moment for other people reading Dickinson in that there is some deep understanding that defies explication. Hmm. And I think that's one of Dickinson's great gifts uh, to be able to tap into that um, human uh, reservoir of, of feelings um, so that so that we are moved. There's a very famous letter that Dickinson wrote in 1862 when she's um, sending off four poems for the first time to a stranger, uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, an essay is for the Atlantic Monthly. And I think it's the most important letter in American literary history. And it begins, Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? And I've always been struck by that because she doesn't say, is my verse good? Is my verse publishable? Is my verse intellectually rich? She says a lot. And so that's a value for her. 
um, that poetry must be alive. And I think that's what touched me as a, as a 16 year old. It, it was that aliveness that made me feel intellectually ignited for the first time. But there's that poem and there you are as a young blossoming woman and all of a sudden now here we are and you are a scholar of Dickinson and you've written other books. So you went from that moment in, in Missouri to, to, to why did you wait till now to write the book? And actually, let me step back and say, how did you decide to dedicate yourself to the study. I mean, it's one thing to love somebody's work the way you were touched by that, that piece, but it made you voraciously devour more or ha- walk me through that, how it went from just, here's a great thing. Voraciously. Yeah, I would say it was a constant. Um, I went from that moment to wanting to know more about Dickinson's life. There were you know, this is in the late 1960s, early 1970s, very few biographies um, out there yet. And um, I, I studied Dickinson in my undergraduate, but then I went off in my own life, you know, and I taught high school English and journalism for six years. And um, then I had completed a master's at uh, Breadloaf School of English at Middlebury and, and then moved to to the Amherst area in 1979 to do a PhD to study Dickinson. But also, I think I always, you know, I always loved biographies, always loved biographies. I I was raised on those blue spine landmark biographies of the 1960s and 50s. Jim Bowie, Boy with a Knife. They always had those those colons in their titles. it was when I moved here, you know, I think it's somewhere in the back of my mind, I, I moved with the idea that I wanted to work on Dickinson biographically and being where she was. And with Dickinson, you know, who did have forays to Washington, D.C., to Philadelphia, to Boston, but Amherst is it. So I, I think I came to University of Massachusetts in large degree because I wanted to begin to see the world uh, through her eyes in a way. So I did a PhD, wrote my dissertation on Dickinson, then started teaching at, at Mount Holyoke. And again, life happens. And I wrote a book on women pilots who were secretly tested to be astronauts. I wrote a book on uh, Tony Stone, the, the first woman to play professional baseball in the Negro Leagues. And why didn't I write a Dickinson book? Because I couldn't figure it out. Because I couldn't figure out how to do a biography of Dickinson that would be narrative nonfiction, which I do, mm-hmm. um, that wasn't a cradle to grave biography because that had already been done. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't an academic book. That again is not what I do. Other people do that and do that very well. I don't, so <laughs> I'm not good at it at all. So, um, so it was trying to figure it out and I just couldn't figure out how to do narrative, not cradle to grave, biography. It had stumped me. So, you know, the other books and and I wrote essays on Dickinson, was active certainly in Dickinson circles, but most importantly, but about, geez, I don't know, 20 years ago or something, I started teaching a seminar on Emily Dickinson at the Dickinson Museum in Amherst. By this time, I'm 
great and good friends with the folks that run the museum. I used to be a guide there. I'm very involved. It's seven miles from my house. And um, so I, I posed this idea of teaching a class in the house and they said, well, let's try it because they're game for things. They're creative and game for things. So I, I had 10 students and why 10? Because that's how many fit in one <laughs> of the bedrooms in the house. Um, and I, I started teaching a, a Tuesday afternoon seminar on Dickinson and my students loved it. I mean, who wouldn't? We're surrounded by the walls that, that uh, that nurtured Emily Dickinson. We had full run of the house from the top of the cupola to down to the cellar. Um, I used to begin the class by taking my students on a three hour walking tour of, of Amherst and hitting all the spots. And so they, they loved it, so did I. But I found that they became particularly engaged with the material when I wrapped the day's lesson around a moment in Emily Dickinson's life. For example, Dickinson wrote many, many poems about um, religious faith and religious doubt. And we studied a moment when she was 17 and a student at, well, the predecessor of Mount Holyoke College, Mount Holyoke Female Seminary. At that time, Mount Holyoke was not unlike other schools in New England. They saw uh, religious conversion, um, pledging your life to Christ, because that's what they meant by religion was Christianity, as part and parcel of being educated. And so Dickinson had to decide, would she join the church or would she be a no-hoper, as they were called? She decided that. And I, I noticed that my students, who were always engaged by the material, became particularly engaged when we when we wrap the day's lesson around a moment. I always cautioned them and I said like, now this is not to say that Dickinson is writing autobiography in her poetry, she was not. She, she once said, when I state myself as the representative of the verse, it is not me, but a supposed person. You know, she'll, she's really claiming the primacy of the imagination, you know, saying don't deny the imagination. I, I can imagine, Going back to my high school, I can imagine what after great pain feels like without maybe having exactly experienced that. So with that caution, we still said, but you know, lives are informed, art is informed by how you live and what you think and who you see. So with my students being so, so interested by that approach, I driving home one day and I said, I think this is it. And um, I think this is what the conceit that I've been looking for. I mean, not every day of my life, but always thinking that I wanted to do a, a book on Dickinson. I think this 10 days approach might be it. And of course, then that set me off into which 10 days? And I chose 10 just because it was an even number and I'm a firm believer. Talk about biography. I'm a firm believer in the 350 page biography. Um, <laughs> I get frustrated with these 800, 900, 1500 page biographies. And uh, uh, so thinking, let's, let's think about what 10 days would I choose? And there were some that were givens where big things happened. My requirement was that I had to choose days where Dickinson was different at 10 o'clock at night than she was at 10 o'clock in the morning where something happened, it might be a letter she received, a letter she wrote, a visit, um, 
some travel, something that might have happened that didn't. Um, and I was also committed to making them chronological, mm -hmm. but not consecutive. So I wanted to give a span of her life that hopefully a reader could see her evolution as a poet. And, and so I, I chose the obvious ones. Uh, when Dickinson writes that famous letter, for example, that I alluded to before, and then when Thomas Wentworth Higginson, her literary mentor, visits her for the first time eight years later um, after she had written that letter. Um, some of my personal favorites, there's a letter she writes her cousins when she's in her 20s and kind of experiencing her 20s the way that most people do when you're kind of casting about and what am I going to do and my friends are getting married but I'm not what should I when she writes her cousin she says do you remember that October morning when our families went out driving and you and I in the dining room decided to be distinguished and I just love that and, and not a lot of people talk about that moment but I think that's that's Dickinson puzzling it out, you know, and saying, I think I'm really gonna go for it here. Um, and then I asked my friends, other Dickinson scholars for uh, days and finally came up with uh, my days. They're not definitive. Everybody's said a 10 would be different, but uh, they're the ones that made the most sense to me. But hearing you talk, it's so, it, usually we talk with people uh, who decide to write something and then immerse themselves in the research. You immerse yourself in the research. And then from that emerged, I mean, it's not, it's not gonna happen in every circumstance, but in your unique circumstance. And I wonder about those two, the other biographies that you've written about other women, mm -hmm. um, if that, do you feel like that, I mean, there's no way it couldn't have baked and informed in you to get to this project, but yeah. is there any obvious way that, that they did? That they informed? Um, well, it's to always to look at context and culture. And I, you know, people tease me a lot and they say, you know, why don't you choose a subject? You know, you're you write about astronauts and then baseball players and then Emily Dickinson, you know, in, in academia, especially, you know, like choose something and specialize in it. But I think I'm always trying to answer the question, what is America? And so um, with my astronaut book, it was a book very, very much about sexism and writing about the Negro Leagues and Tony Stone is very much about Jim Crow. And I think with Dickinson, um, this was tough, but I, I think with Dickinson, she writes so much about the gap between aspiring for something, wanting something and not quite getting it. It's like the reach. And uh, that can be the gap between faith and disbelief. It can be between love and abandonment. And I think that's so much at the heart of the American character, you know, of, of trying to aspire, of being with what what might what what we hope is the best, the most equal um, the most uh, embracing of freedom and equity as we can be, but always somehow falling short. And so I think with those other books, trying to, um, trying to look at this bigger picture of, of placing a subject within 
culture and within American history, um, both private histories and, and larger, uh, more conventional notions of, of history. Um, I think that's one thing they have in common. Certainly the, the research, the going about the research was very different because um, with, with Tony Stone, the baseball book in particular, there just wasn't much. And I remember going to the Baseball Hall of Fame and encountering, you know, how racism affects archives in that the materials were not considered important back in the 1940s and 50s. They were not collected. I couldn't find hardly anything. And so it meant that I, I gathered it. I had to, I spent an, an awful lot of time in old guys' basements and garages talking baseball, which was pretty much heaven on earth. Um, but uh, they, they each required a, diff a different take. I'm starting a new book now, just at the very beginning. And it's again, a whole new different set of challenges. I, I'm writing about Dolly Parton. I think it'll be an awful lot about class in America. And now uh, there the challenges, unlike Tony Stone, the Negro Leagues baseball player, there is so much out there, you know, on Dolly Parton and some of it I'm not particularly interested in. and. Uh, so, um, you know, my work was cut out for me with, with each of them in, in, in very different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is the Dolly book, is it authorized? Is it? No, no, I wouldn't want that. Um, you know, I want to play by my own rules, see I, what I can see. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know, or I, I haven't reached out yet for an interview. I, I think I'd like to have an interview, but there are a lot of other ways of, of getting getting at it. Do you think you're done with Dickinson writing about her? I'm, I'm sort of a one and done girl. You know, I'm not going to write about astronauts again. I'm, I'm not going to write about baseball players. Although with the, the Tony Stone book, a wonderful situation happened after I wrote the book. It was optioned for the stage. And for nine years, I worked with Tony Award winning director Pam McKinnon and the great playwright Lydia Diamond. And we, uh, thank goodness, in the summer of 2019, opened at the Roundabout in, in, in New York and was named the best play by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, our lead, um, April Mathis, won the Obie. And, and then we were set to you know, go all across the country. And uh, we opened on the West Coast in San Francisco this time last year and opened and closed on the same night. So because of COVID, so that that's on hold, but I never thought that there would be an act two with, with the Tony Stone book. So I guess I ought to, you know, be careful with what you say, but, but Dickinson's different. Dickinson is a constant. And I, I imagine I will do some essays. I, I'm not going to do another book on Dickinson, but I, I can imagine that uh, should the right uh, small subject, crop up, I might do some essays. I like, um, you know, for the Atlantic or, or some, something like that, that, uh, that, that might come along. She's an enduring presence in the world and in your life too. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I got out of fashion. I, I, was, uh, I was doing an interview yesterday and somebody asked about the peaks and valleys of, Dickin of interest in Dickinson. And, you know, there really aren't too many valleys and, and, and she, she is enduring. And, Right now with the Apple TV series and the, and two movies within the last, I don't know, seven years or so, you know, she continues to 
to be out there. Ackman says she worked hard to capture the human nuances of Dickinson to, in her words, go small. I wanted to talk about the food she liked, her sister's favorite apple, um, what made her cranky. And we have three volumes of collected letters, thank goodness, um, that Emily Dickinson wrote. And of course I mined those. I mean, I just read them and read them and read them and read them. And I also, when I took notes, I know you can do this in faster ways by scanning in a book, you know, and scanning your notes, but I find I need the muscle memory of it. So I would like type all these quotes and my notes and into, you know, big thick chapter notes that I worked from. And I remember I had one file on my computer that was dailiness. I called it dailiness. And it was that kind of thing, you know, about she wrote in a letter that, that she liked, um, she likes she, she sauteed beans and potatoes, I think it was, kind of liquid foods. And Baldwin's were her sister's favorite apple. Um, so I think, you know, some sometimes scholars can miss that kind of human element to it. And I tried to say, yeah, we think we know Dickinson, but how about if we open up this window and go at it this way? That's Martha Ackman, whose latest book, These Fevered Days, 10 Pivotal Moments in the Making of Emily Dickinson, was published in 2020. You can hear more conversations with authors on our website, biographersinternational.org, or wherever podcasts are found. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Cherie Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio. Bio.